Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. First question, do you think the JetBlue and Spirit that de- do you think JetBlue and Spirit may try again under a Republican administration? So lots of questions came in yesterday after I shared that a federal judge has essentially blocked the um, merger between JetBlue and Spirit on antitrust grounds. So what does that mean? Well, for those of us who read Titan last quarter, which was the biography about Rockefeller and the history of his um, building up of Standard Oil through acquisition, and then subsequently the antitrust litigation that created um, that forced the breakup of Standard Oil and then the rest of his life that he spent, you know, contributing to philanthropy and things like that. Much of the antitrust um, laws, a lot of those evolved out of that time period. So they all came about like in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And specifically, um, and then there was another round kind of in the like 1910 to 1920 time period. And really what they are looking to do through antitrust law is protect consumers. And so what this federal judge found is that the combination of Spirit and JetBlue, and literally when they're looking at anti-competitive practices, it's not to say that um, this is necessarily the intent of the merger, but what they're looking at is literally at a route by route level where there might be overlap and how that might negatively impact consumers. And so what this judge found was that there were overlapping routes, some of which would eliminate capacity and could increase prices for consumers on those routes by as much as 30% or more. And so that was why the transaction is blocked. Now, there is a long history of sort of perspective around political parties that say Republicans are more business friendly and Democrats are kind of anti-big business. And so this question is asking, would a different administration be more favorable? Here's the thing. This is decided by a federal judge. There is very well-documented antitrust law. And unlike some other laws, which can be subjective, and I'll talk about like the element of this that can be subjective, there are actual formulaic calculations associated with antitrust law that literally examine market share. Now, the area of subjectivity that comes in when you're looking at antitrust law is how you define a market. So as an example, in this case, you could define the market as I think the data that's been coming out says something like JetBlue is the sixth largest air carrier in the U.S. and Spirit is the seventh largest air carrier in the U.S. and then they'll look at their market share for the nation as a whole. But oftentimes when you're evaluating these things, you'll define the market far more narrowly. And so it might say kind of market by market, like what is their market share of routes between very specific markets as an example? And perhaps the consolidation would have resulted in them having 100% market share in those markets. So that's the element that has 
uh, a, a sense of subjectivity to it in terms of how you define a specific market when you're calculating market share. But the actual calculations that are used to kind of justify whether something is in violation of antitrust law or not is fairly formulaic. Um, the other thing that you should know is that the federal judge who handed down the decision was actually appointed by Ronald Reagan. So technically, the judiciary is supposed to be impartial. Um, it shouldn't matter what their political affiliation is. They are appointed to enforce the laws as they stand. Um, and I do think that in this specific circumstance, it wouldn't matter a difference in administration. Um, could they appeal? Could they agree to divest certain assets um, in order to kind of, you know, not be in violation of these specific markets where they're finding there to be a problem? Perhaps that might be another way for them to take another bite at the apple. Um, but just know that like antitrust law is pretty formulaic. It's fairly well established. Most of it has been around now for well over 100 years. Um, and we're going to be starting to see more of it. Some of it could be kind of the um, bends of a democratic administration looking to more heavily enforce some of these laws. But the other piece of it is just the economic environment that we're in. Higher interest rates puts greater financial pressure on smaller operators. Larger operators have been um, building cash reserves over the last several years. And so they have money to put to work. And so there are you know, smaller players who are going to be under financial distress, potentially under the pressure of higher interest rates. And that is gonna create, and there's going to be more corporate merger activity as a result. And so I just saw another headline yesterday that said um, in the state of Washington, an antitrust suit has been filed with the Justice Department over the merger of, I believe it is Kroger and Albertsons, if I'm not, oh, is that the right? It's between two um, grocery chains um, for some of, you know, and that's the same examination will take place. In this specific market, is this gonna create anti-competitive practices that are going to elevate prices for consumers? And th that's kind of the math and the things that they're looking at in order to make those decisions. And it's ultimately designed to protect you. Um, so anyway, hopefully that addresses that question. If there's, I'm gonna, um, later today, I'm gonna put up in my, uh, in my stories, a question box specifically about antitrust questions. I think this is a topic that's going to continue to come up this year just because of the nature of the environment that we're in. So I'd like to gather all of your questions that you have about antitrust and put together kind of a standalone blog post about these are the various laws and how they came about that kind of regulate all of this. Um, and then we'll go through kind of some specific example cases, just like, you know, we read about Standard Oil and Titan. Um, there are other kind of very major antitrust law uh, cases, case cases where the laws have been applied and you can kind of see how they've ultimately played out over time. So if that's something you're interested in learning more about, look for that question box in my stories later tonight and I'll collect all of those and um, start working on that. Okay, next question. How do we understand all this talk of a soft landing versus no soft landing from the Fed? All right, so let's kind of I guess, define the terminology that's involved in this question, and then I'll talk to sort of the more specific elements of it. So what do people mean when they say a soft landing? So for the better part of the last 12 to 18 months, you've had various people in finance and economists predicting that there's going to have to be a recession to rein in an inflation, and it hasn't happened yet. 
what we have people saying now is we may avoid a recession and instead experience a soft landing. So what does that mean? Well, I think most people understand that a recession is defined as a decline in GDP. So if we measure the size of our economy in terms of GDP, which stands for gross domestic product, and gross domestic product is essentially calculated as the value of all the goods and services that are produced within our economy. And so a recession is defined as a contraction in the production of all the goods and services in our economy. And they calculate those things on a real basis, meaning absent the impact of inflation. So if we just look at the quantity of all the goods and services that are produced, absent any fluctuations in price, um, and obviously inflation has really boosted the overall value of those things in recent years, and we just look at the quantity of the goods and services being produced, um, if the quantity diminishes or you know, decreases from one period to another, that is essentially the definition of a recession. A soft landing, as many people are talking about it, would be that we don't actually see a decline in the quantity of goods and services produced, but we might see, um, you know, we see inflation subside, continue to subside, uh, and we see just a slowdown or a muted kind of growth level. So people are talking about, you know, sort of like that anemic zero to 1% growth, that might be what a soft landing looks like. And a soft landing would also be associated with less of an increase in unemployment. And so what many people are kind of saying with a look in their rearview mirror is that a large part of inflation over the last, call it two years, was, you know, there are different sources of inflation. And in my stories, when I'm done here today, I will link up a post where I explain what inflation is, what are the different drivers and things that can cause inflation. Inflation can be created from the demand side of the equation, meaning people buying, trying to buy more goods and services than are being produced. Or it can be created by the supply side of the equation, meaning there aren't enough goods and services being produced. And so that is pushing prices up higher. And what we had happen over the last two years was sort of a combination of those two things happen at the same time. We had supply chains impacted during the pandemic that kind of mucked everything up and created shortages that drove up the price of goods and services. We had labor constraints with people wanting to stay home during the pandemic. Um, also contributing to that or factory shutdowns because of illness outbreaks and things like that, all contributing to a shortage of goods and services that contributed to inflation. And then at the same time, we had government spending and stimulus checks and expanded unemployment benefits also driving up the demand side of the equation. So we technically had both things happening at the same time. Many people are now saying that the stabilization of the supply side of the equation, so people going back to work and those labor shortages being alleviated, um, supply chains getting straightened out or substituted from domestic supply sources, um, alleviating some of those supply shortages, and that that has been the source of a lot of the decline in inflation to this point. And because of all of that, we were able to avoid a recession and significant increases in unemployment because they're saying it was more of a supply side issue, not so much a demand side issue. 
Um, and so that's kind of where we're at at this point in time. So soft landing just means we continue to see inflation subside. We don't see a decline in GDP or a you know decline in the um, economy. And but we likely see growth be more muted. So if you think about kind of long term growth, the um, U.S. economy has sort of grown at two to three percent GDP annually over a long period of time. That's kind of been considered to be the sweet spot, stable growth of, of the economy. Um, if we had like a zero to one percent growth, that would be pretty anemic. And that's kind of that soft landing situation. Um one thing to understand, just kind of simple math, is that I think the right ratio is something like a half percent increase in unemployment is the equivalent of a million people being out of work. So it's also important to know that even if there is a soft landing, if growth is much less than people have been anticipating or that companies are designed, have structured themselves to um, operate with, there still could be layoffs that could increase unemployment. And unemployment doesn't have to increase that much in terms of overall percentage rates for there to be a sizable increase in the number of people out of work. Um, so I think that's just something to kind of keep in mind in the back of your mind, that soft landing doesn't mean that unemployment doesn't increase. It just likely doesn't increase as much as if we had, say, a recession. So that's kind of what's being bantered about and discussed and debated um, you should know also that after typically we have kind of a severe negative economic event, typically in the aftermath, you see a rebound in recovery where growth is significantly above average. To some extent, we've had that over the last year or two, but for it to be so anemic now um, is not typical or normal or a good sign, I would say of um, kind of just the economic trajectory of things. Um, typically after a negative contraction like we had through COVID, you would see above trend growth for a while and then a return to a more normal level, not kind of like this soft landing that everybody is discussing, if that makes sense. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's the vernacular. I feel like sometimes the media kind of somebody says something like soft landing and then they kind of grab onto it and say it over and over and over again without ever kind of clearly explaining what it means. That's essentially what it means. It means we don't have a recession, but things are kind of eh. Um, and we don't have unemployment that gets really high, but it's not so great either. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it and how when I hear people say it, that's what I'm envisioning. We'll continue to track the data and see what it looks like and show you what it actually means in real factually based data terms. Um, but only time will tell kind of how it plays out. As of right now, I think a lot of the market was baking in that interest rate cuts were going to come relatively soon, like call it March, you know, pre-June, maybe even by March. Um, the latest CPI report that came out last week showed inflation actually went up instead of coming down, which isn't going to make the Fed likely to cut rates soon. So those projections are kind of getting pushed out. And well, again, we have to just kind of wait and see how it all plays out. So I hope that that helps and gives you at least a little bit of color as to like how to think about it. Um, okay, next question. 
what is included in a savings rate calculation? So I'm not sure if you are asking about like how you calculate the percentage of what you are saving, or if you are asking about like the savings rate that you're getting paid at a bank. So maybe I'll address both and just to cover all the bases here. So a lot of times you may see kind of this time of year, people talking about um, their financial goals, tracking how they perform relative to their financial goals in the year past, and then setting up for the goals they wanna achieve for the coming year. Savings rate in that context is just how much money did you save relative to the income you brought in? Um, and it's a very simple calculation of how much did I invest and put away and save for the future? And you divide that by how much income you brought in, and that is the savings rate, right? So if I made $100,000 this year and I saved $20,000 across, say, my retirement accounts and my kids 529 plan and into my emergency fund, your savings rate would be 20%. Very simple calculation. Um, if you're asking more about kind of the interest rate that you're getting paid on a savings account, um, that is a little bit more complicated. So typically when we talk about quoted interest rates or headline interest rates, and this is true whether you're talking about the interest rate you're getting paid on your savings account, or you're talking about the interest rate you're paying on a credit card, they're often quoted in what are known as APRs or annual percentage rates. So it's this headline annual number. So if, for example, on a high yield savings account, they tell you you're getting paid 5% a year, that is an APR. Then you need to understand how interest is actually being calculated. Is it being calculated on a monthly basis? Is it being calculated on a daily basis? That five, let's typically on most savings accounts, it's on your average balance over the course of a month. So they'll take that 5%, and because it's being calculated monthly, they'll divide that 5% by 12. And so the interest you get paid in any given month is 5% divided by 12 times the average balance of your account. And so on a compounded basis, because you're compounding monthly, the actual interest rate that you earn over the course of the year is going to be a little bit more than 5%. That same math happens on like a credit card, only the APR is usually something much higher. I think right now it's averaging north of 25% on most credit cards that carry a balance. And the interest is typically calculated on a daily basis. So you're gonna take that 25%, divide it by 365, and the compounding effect is gonna put the interest rate that you're actually paying at the end of the year, something even you know, significantly higher than that headline 25%. So again, I'm not sure if you were asking about like calculating savings rate as a percentage of the income you're bringing in or calculating like the interest that you're earning on your savings, but that kind of covers both bases. So I hope that that helps. Uh, okay, let's see. Um, last question that was submitted last night. And then if anybody is here listening live and has questions they want to ask, those are more than welcome to, uh, advice on starting to teach money skills to young kids like preschool and early elementary. So I have a really great blog post that I will link up here in my stories when I'm done, um, specifically about this. And essentially, I really think it's critical that kids understand four basic concepts when it comes to money. 
The first most basic when they are little is sort of just like basic number sense, like understanding that one is more than two. And this will also help inform like when you start to teach this stuff, you're not going to be able to teach a one-year-old about money when they don't yet understand kind of um, just basic numeracy. The fact that, you know, like three is more than one, for example. Um, but once your child, and I would say this usually happens around like three-ish, um, once your child has that basic understanding, they are ready to start understanding these things. Um, so one, it's just, you know, understanding kind of the basic fundamentals of like math and numbers that, you know, something that is $5 is more than something that is $1. Um, then the next thing they need to understand is that money is earned. Where does money come from? Right. It doesn't grow on trees. Um, when mom takes, and what makes things about this more complicated nowadays is that so many transactions are absent cash. So it's much more of an abstract concept for kids than it was, say, when we were growing up, um, you know, they just see like, oh, mommy hands over this piece of plastic and that pays for everything. They don't necessarily understand that there's money in a bank account behind that. So that makes it a little more challenging. Um, but they need to understand that like money is earned. You know, mom and dad get up and go to work every day in order to earn money. And the money that they earn is what provides for the food in our house, the roof over our heads, the activities that you get to go do, the clothes that you get to wear. Um, and so when we are saying yes or no to things, that has financial implications to it. And this isn't to say that you need to tell your child exactly how much money you make or how much your home is worth or how much their shoes cost, but they just need to understand that there is value associated with that and that the money that comes to pay for it comes from work and earning it. Okay. So that's the other thing. Then as they get a little bit older, you can start to talk about the fact that when you save money, um, that you can earn interest. And so that compounding effect and the benefit of savings and the way that you can model that for kids at a young age is to do like matching, for example. So have your four or five-year-old, if there's something they really want, have them, you know, do chores around the house to earn money that they can save to reach their goal. And you can say, hey, look, this costs $20. If you save 10 of it, I will match the other 10 and then we can go and get it, just as a simple example. Um, but those are the types of things that kids at a young age can learn. Um, you know, when you go to Target and they point out stuff and say, hey, mommy, I want that, have them walk over and go and look at the price tag and say, well, how much does it cost? Well, is that a lot or is it a little? Um, do you have money in your piggy bank saved up for it? Those are the kind of conversations that you can have. And I'll link up the blog post in my stories um, where I go through some of those things in more detail. There's also a really great book um, that I always recommend to parents. It's called How to Make Your Kid a Money Genius Even If You're Not. And I really like it because it goes through different money topics at different ages and how you can have conversations around those things. Um, so like I said, um, I'll link up those blog posts and then that's a book that I would recommend on the subject. Um, but again, one of the things that actually I think I learned in that book is that kids' money habits are established at a much younger age than most people realize. Um, kids as young as three and four are more than ready to start having these conversations with and understanding these topics 
basically the age when your kid is like asking for stuff and wanting stuff, they're old enough to start to have these conversations with. And typically by the age of seven, basic money habits are already getting established and formed. So if you're not having those conversations before that age, you're not going to influence those habit formations and making sure that they're good money habits. Um, so anyway, check out that book. And like I said, I'll link up that blog post here when I am done. Uh, okay. Well, if there are not any more questions, I think that is it for today. A couple of things just to be aware of happening here at Family Finance Mom and then data releases that are coming out that may be of interest. Uh, one, I announced last night our FFM book club pick for Q1. It's a book I'm very excited to read. It's called The Two-Parent Privilege. And it's written by an economics professor who has essentially made this like her life's basis of research about how marriage and family structure has an impact on economic outcomes, both for the children coming out of these different family structures, but also for the economy at large. Um, and specifically, she uses data to show how parents being raised in a household with two married parents has declined dramatically over the last 40 years, but the decline is very concentrated by education. Um, so it's interesting. Those who are college educated among us are essentially getting married at the same, you know, our children are living in households with two married parents at near the same rate as 40 years ago. But for those who are less educated, that don't have a college degree or have less than a um, high school degree, marriage rates have dropped precipitously and single parenthood is much more common. And so it's sort of a double whammy economically of, um, you know, less education means lower income. And then if you have children, that's having to stretch that lower income across more people. Um, and then you can imagine the resulting economic Im implications of that. And so she explores some of the trends, supporting it with data to, and then explores like, why is this happening? What are the ramifications of it happening? And then explores kind of potential solutions um, that we could explore as an economy in order to reverse some of these trends with the ultimate goal, not of shaming, not of forcing people to get married, but creating a more stable economic environment and better economic outcomes for these kids and for our economy as a whole. Um, so anyway, I think it should be a super interesting read. I think she's incredibly brave for being willing to get out there and talk about these things. This has been kind of like um, an unspoken topic, right? Like you can't say that single parents are economically disadvantaged because somehow that carries value judgment, even if the data bears it out. Um, so I think she's really brave for putting this out there. And I think more people should read it because these are the things that should be influencing policy decisions. Um, you know, real data-based information, uh, and understanding how we can improve outcomes for everyone. So anyway, I'm very excited to read it. I hope you guys are too. And I'm looking forward to discussing it come March. Um, a couple economic data releases coming out this week. Uh, this morning were December retail sales numbers. I haven't seen what they are yet. I think they were generally good, but we'll kind of see what it means after the impact of inflation because the headline number is with the benefit of inflation, which we all knew went up in December. So we'll see what that looks like. 
Um, tomorrow we will have weekly jobless claims update, which as a reminder, have been up significantly over the last week or so. So we'll see how that is trending. We'll see what mortgage rates come in at. Um, and then there was something coming out on Friday. Oh, consumer sentiment. Consumer sentiment is just a survey by the University of Michigan. It's a long-standing survey that basically asks people, hey, how are you feeling? And the reality is, is that, and I say this all the time, but economics is a social science. It is about how we as human beings feel about the world around us. And often how we feel impacts the way that we spend our money and that has economic ramifications. And so that is why that is relevant and valid and important. So that comes out on Friday. So those are kind of the things to be looking for this week. The other thing to be aware of is that it is earnings season for many businesses that have a quarter end of 1231. Um, the earnings from Q4 are starting to come out. Up first this last week, we've seen many of the big banks with their earnings announcements. Some of those have also come with layoff announcements. Um, so over the next week or so, I'll be sharing kind of as a, I don't tend, unless something really earth shattering happens, I don't tend to share individual company earnings, um, but I will talk about kind of industry at large. I will kind of talk about the S&P 500 as a whole and why this all matters for any of you is that ultimately earnings, earnings growth, earnings outlook is what drives the stock market. The two biggest correlated factors to stock market performance are corporate earnings are first and interest rates are second. So those two things, if you're investing for your future and saving for the future, those are the two things that are gonna drive stock market performance and that's why we pay attention to them. So anyway, that's what's going on this week. Um, I hope you guys have a great rest of the week. I hope this winter weather craziness subsides a little bit so we can all get back into a more normal routine, especially at least that's how I feel right now. Um, and I will be back here next Wednesday at our regular time of 9 a.m. to do live Q&A again. So have a great week. Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at familyfinancemom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.